Psalm 71 is written by an aged believer looking back at his life. He reflects over the trials of this life, and he sees his undaunted faith in God. Having looked back, he considers his present situation and circumstances, and is confident that his faith will endure, and God will continue to be his deliverer. And so we're going to title Psalm 71, A Psalm of Faith. A Psalm of Faith. We're going to break this psalm into three sections. Section 1, verses 1 through 8, and we'll see faith's cry of hope. Faith's cry of hope. In verses 9 to 16, we'll consider faith's confession of hope. Faith's confession of hope. And then finally, in verses 17 to 24, we'll consider faith's conviction of hope. Faith's conviction of hope. So let's begin in verses 1 through 8, and faith's cry of hope. The psalmist begins, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Verses 1 to 3 are nearly identical to Psalm 31, 1 to 3. The psalmist begins with a cry of hope. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. He asks because of this to never be put to shame. Literally, the text renders this way, let me never be ashamed. By God's righteousness, that is his moral character, he prays to be delivered. And next, the psalmist asks that God would hear and act. And the act is that he needs to be saved or delivered. He needs to be rescued from his foes, and he knows that God will be his rock of habitation, that he can go to God continually, and that God will always be his secure defense. God will always be his protection. And as we'll see later in this text, God has been his secure defense and protection over a lifetime. In praying to God to keep him, the psalmist is asking God to be true to his own revelation. He reminds him, you have given the commandment to save me or to deliver me. Now, verse 4 repeats the cry of deliverance that we saw in verse 2. We have an intensive form of the verb rescue, literally meaning bring me into security. The psalmist needs security. Why? Because look at the threefold description of his enemies. They're wicked, they're wrongdoers, and they're ruthless. The word wicked means criminals. Okay, They have committed some kind of crime. Wrongdoer is a lawbreaker, and ruthless, which uniquely is only used here in the Old Testament, means an oppressor. So they've committed crimes, they've broken the law, and they're oppressing him. Now, the singular forms of each of these words is used, but as a collective. In other words, it's a group of wicked, a group of wrongdoers, a group of ruthless ones. And notice the mention of the hand of the wicked. The word hand here signifies the power. 
And so he wants to be delivered out of the hand or out of the power of the, of the criminal, out of the lawbreaker, out of the oppressor. Verse 5 and 6 shows us that this cry for deliverance is based on God's character. As the psalmist reviews the history of God's dealing with him since his birth, he can confess, God, you are my hope, you are my confidence, and I know that you will secure me in the days to come because you have secured me from my youth. I have confidence. I'm resting upon you. Literally, the idea of the Hebrew word confidence is shifting your weight onto God. You know, it reminds us of, uh, of what Peter said, casting all your cares upon him, shifting all your weight upon him. The psalmist also says that he's been sustained by God from his birth. Literally, the picture here depicts God as a midwife who delivered the psalmist from his mother's womb. And having known a lifetime of security, he says, my praise is continually of you. He understands that the fact just in the act of his birth, in his act of coming into this world, God's hand was upon him. God was sustaining him. Now, as this first section concludes, the Psalms describes himself as a marvel to many. And the word marvel here is unique. It means a supernatural display of divine power. Uh, you know, we, we could uh, think of a miracle, if you will. But this term is used of the plagues of Exodus. When we think of the uh, ten plagues, they were marvels. Uh, they inspired terror on the part of Egypt, and then they inspired worship on the part of God's people. And often when we see these marvels in the Old Testament, uh, they have something to do with revealing God's purpose. You know, we think about the plagues, they revealed God's purpose to deliver Israel out of Egypt and bring them to a place where they could worship him. Well, the psalmist here calls himself a marble, marvel, and in other words, he's a, a, a supernatural display of divine power. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things. It could be one, that God is graciously working in him, and, you know, as people see God's work, there's their marveling, they're seeing a supernatural display of divine power, or at the same time it can mean that the psalmist uh, was inflicted with an illness and as such was a sign of God's judgment. Either way, the psalmist exclaims, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. And the word glory refers to the beauty of jewels or to the renown of a ruler. Uh, so your glory, your renown, I, I, I speak forth all day long. That's the consequence of God's deliverance. The consequence of God's security are always praise and worship. When we reflect on how God has worked in our lives down through the years, from the time of our birth until wherever we may be, we ought to praise God. We ought to worship God. Now, verses 9 through 16, we have faith's confession of hope. Faith's confession of hope. Let's begin reading. Verse 9. Do not cast me off in a time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. O God, do not be far from me. O God, hasten to my help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. 
for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord, God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Now, we, we are brought to the greatest fear of the psalmist. And his greatest fear is that in old age, God may not be there. That's why he's looking back over his life. Okay, God, you were there at my birth. You were here. You were here. You were here. You have to be here now in my old age. And that's why he says, do not cast me off. You know, perhaps he is dealing with some illness. And it's caused him to think that maybe God has forsaken him. Maybe God has forgotten him. And, and, and that's probably amplified by the attacks of his enemies. And so God in this time of failing strength, in this time of emotional drain, do not forsake me as my enemies speak against me, as they keep a watch for my life, as they take counsel together. In other words, they were plotting to destroy him. They saw his weakness, and his enemies concluded, well, God must have abandoned him, and he must be under divine judgment. And that's why his enemies say, let's pursue and seize him, because there's no one to deliver him. That's how it appears to the outside world. And so in this crisis, the psalmist prays, God, do not be far away from thee. Do not be distant. Because in the Old Testament, distance was always considered to be a sign of God's judgment. That's why David cried out in Psalm 38, 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. And here the psalmist is saying, O my God, hasten to my help. Notice that personal, my God. It's an intimate relationship, but also notice the sense of urgency here. Hasten. Get here as soon as possible. Why? Because of my adversaries. The word adversaries here uh, is the word, the Hebrew word for the accusers, my accusers of my soul. Let them be ashamed. Let them be consumed. Ashamed means that uh, let them be embarrassed when God refutes their charges. Let them be consumed. Let them be destroyed. The psalmist is asking God to cover those who seek to injure him with reproach and dishonor. In other words, expose their lies and cause them to lose their credibility. And so we see him crying out for vindication against those who have hurt him. And, you know, many times this is the position we ourselves are in when we've been hurt. We're crying out to God, deliver us. And, you know, one thing that prayer does when we cry out, especially in, in need for deliverance or for rescue or for security, it deepens our faith. And that develops a new longing because now not only do we want to ourselves to be vindicated, but we want to see God vindicated by those who are attempting to hurt him. Now, the psalmist has not yet seen the justice done, but he says, I'm going to hope continually, and I'm going to praise you more and more. You know, again, that's what we see. As we pray, as we worship God, our faith builds. That's why in Romans 4.20, Paul says of Abraham that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Listen, he's told in old age, you're going to have a son. He doesn't see any way possible for that to happen. And yet... He, his faith grows, and it grows to the point that he believes the promise. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. Lord, I know what you've done for me here, here, and here, and therefore I believe, I am confident that you are going to do it now. And because of that, I'm going to praise you. I'm not going to wait to praise until you do it. I'm going to praise you now because I know you will do it. And see, verse 15 then transforms our worship into witness. 
I'm going to tell. I'm going to declare of God's righteous deeds, of his salvation or deliverance all day long. And he says, regarding his praise, he says, I do not know the sum of them. I do not know the number of your righteous deeds. Your righteous deeds are more than I can recall. But I know this. I'm going to go on in the strength of the Lord God. See, when our strength fails, God's strength is there. And it's mighty in power. Finally, we come to verses 17 to 24, and we have faith's conviction of hope. 17 to 24, faith's conviction of hope. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me, until I declare your strength to this generation, your powers to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. You have shown me many troubles and distresses, will revive me again and will bring me up from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, even with your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praise with the lyre. O Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. Here the psalmist wants to tell his generation. He has so much conviction of hope. He's so convinced of what God is going to do that he wants to tell this generation. He's been taught by God from his youth. And that's why he can trust in the Lord even now. That's why he wants to declare God's wondrous deeds, his mighty acts. His mighty acts in creation, his mighty acts in judgment, his mighty acts in redemption. He wants to declare these things. Why? Because he wants this generation to guard their thinking. He doesn't want them to think that God has forsaken him. He doesn't want them to think that God has abandoned him or that God has judged him and left him on his own. He wants them to know God's wondrous works and that those wondrous works have been experienced personally in his life. In his old age, the psalmist says, God, do not merely be with me so I can have deliverance, but strengthen me so I can instruct this generation. The word strength there literally means arm, and it's a picture of a might. And, and he wants to witness God's might or God's strength, God's power to all who are come. He says, not only do I want to testify to this generation, I want to tell the next generation as well. And again, God hasn't even done it yet. God hasn't yet delivered him from his enemies. But he's so confident that God will, based on his past experiences with God, that he's going to tell people now that God's already done it. He wants to tell this generation and the next generation so that they, too, can be confident. Turning to the personal again, he says that, God, you have shown me many troubles and distresses over my lifetime, but each time you have revived me again. You have returned. You have kept me alive. You have brought me up again out of the depths of the earth. I've been at the edge of death, David, or the psalmist, rather. We don't know specifically if it's David, but uh, we assume that it is, but because we don't have a statement, that's why we're referring to him as the psalmist. But coming back from the edge of death, the psalmist is confident that God is going to increase his greatness and surround him with comfort. 
And by greatness, he refers to honor. And the honor that he receives comes from trusting in God. His faith is strong. His confidence in God has revived him. He's returned to full life and he vows to praise God with both the lyre and the harp. And just as an aside, you know, you hear of of these quote-unquote religious groups that do not use instruments to praise God. What do they do with the book of Psalms, for example? where time and again we see these beautiful instruments that God has enabled us to create, used to praise and glorify God. Now note the progression in verse 22, that he goes from praising God to focusing on God's truth, to focusing on who God is. Oh my God, who is God? He is the Holy One of Israel. He is separate from all others. He is morally pure. He is free from blemish. And this one who is set apart from all others is awesome in his righteousness. And so the psalmist's lips shout for joy, break forth in song, and come from his redeemed soul. And along with his worship, there's still that witness. My tongue will also utter your righteousness all day long. Those who have heard me, they've been brought to shame. And it's interesting because that hadn't happened yet, but as far as the psalmist was concerned, it was a done deed. They thought that God was against him. They were wrong. God acted. He revived him, and his enemies were humiliated because God vindicated him. And that's the beauty of it. So often we want to vindicate ourselves. Folks, we don't need to vindicate ourselves. God will vindicate us. And so we see here in Psalm 71, deliverance from crisis. Here's an an elderly person who has known God throughout his lifetime, whose faith has grown. And yet in this current situation, he has to go back and look over, review over those times where God has worked, so that now in his older age, he will still remember and still believe that God will deliver him, that God will redeem him, that God has not abandoned him. And he wants to now say, Lord, in whatever time I have left, I want to declare it to this generation and to the next generation. Is that our desire? As we look back at our lives, do we see our faith growing? Do we see our faith growing because we see how God has acted? Maybe our faith hasn't grown because we haven't taken the time to look back and see God. So I challenge you, take some time. Look back. Go back from your birth forward and see the times when God has intervened and acted time and again on your behalf. And as you do that, may it bring you to worship. But folks, don't just stop with worship. Let it lead you to witness. In whatever time God gives you on this earth, use that time not only to worship God, but to witness for God, to declare to this generation and to the next who God is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for the testimony of this psalmist. Writing from his old age, he reflects back on a lifetime of growing faith. Growing faith because he has experienced you time and again acting in his life, delivering him, directing him. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us do the same, that we might take the time to look back 
and to see your good hand. That, Father, it would strengthen us and grow our faith. And that in turn, Lord, we might worship and witness you and witness of you to this generation and the next. We pray this on the character of your Son, Jesus. Amen.